Okay, good All morning. Right. Eric's on line. Here he is. Uh, we're recording, and he's going to start us with prayer. Amen. It's good to see everybody. We'll bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can look into your word and know about your promises that you have for us. We also thank you, Lord, that you're going to come again and vindicate your people, that you won't allow your people to anguish and languish and um, under the the uh, under the wicked ones forever, Lord. We thank you that you're going to come and rescue us from them. We pray that you give us stamina through these verses as we study them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, dear ones, last week we left off in Joel uh, 3 where we're looking at this battle that happens at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And so one of the things we want to discuss is where does this battle happen? Where is the Valley of Jehoshaphat? And so that's where we left off last time. Now remember, I gave you four options. First of all, some scholars think that the Valley of Jehoshaphat is not a literal place. And I explained why I don't think that that's necessarily the case. This is going to be a literal battle that will literally occur at the end of time. And certainly Joel might not have a literal place in mind, but it really will be a literal place. Number two, maybe it was a literal place that Joel didn't really know. But as I showed you last time, remember from Joel chapter three, verses 15 through 17, I gave evidence that suggested Joel knew that this battle would happen around Jerusalem. Now turn your Bibles there once again to Joel 3, verses 15 through 17. And the reason I want you to turn there is I just want to remind you some of the textual clues that we have within Joel chapter 3, that this battle that Joel is describing will in fact happen around the precincts of Jerusalem. Now again, turn your Bibles to Joel 3, verses 15 through 17. Now, as you're turning there, let me just mention something. We'll read about the sun, moon, and stars being darkened in this passage. And before I read it, remember that there were five cosmic disturbances in the 70th week of Daniel. You have one at the sixth seal. You, want, you have one at the fourth bowl. You have one at the fifth bowl. And then you have, excuse me, trumpets, fourth trumpet, fifth trumpet, and then again at the fourth bowl. Those are four of them. But then Jesus describes in Matthew 24, 29, another cosmic disturbance that will occur at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. And we know that because he says, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, etc., etc. Okay, so that would be the fifth one. So the whole 70th week of Daniel is characterized by cosmic disturbances, the last is being described here in Joel chapter 3. This is the cosmic disturbance that occurs as the Messiah returns to fight against the nations surrounding Jerusalem. Now notice here, let's read Joel 3, 15 through 17. It says, The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So stop there. Notice Jerusalem is specifically mentioned. Where is the Lord fighting from? Well, it's depicted from Jerusalem. It says, And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is the refuge of his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. So notice again the references to Jerusalem from uh, to Zion. Certainly this last battle is going to occur around Jerusalem. And so that leads me to believe this is going to be a literal battle 
that happens in a literal valley. Now remember the last two choices, we had the Jezreel Valley. And one of the reasons the Jezreel Valley is a tempting valley for this final battle is because it's mentioned in the book of Revelation, Revelation 16, 16. In fact, does somebody, I don't have it in my notes here. Could somebody read Revelation 16, 16? And as we find somebody to read Revelation 16, 16, remember the Jezreel Valley is this valley that extends from the northwest to the southeast, beginning around Mount Carmel. And then it goes by Megiddo and it goes down towards uh, Beth Shean and Mount Gilboa, where David and Saul had died in battle uh, many, many years prior to Joel writing his okay, prophecy. Okay, I got it here, Eric. Good, good. Here's Revelation 16, 16. Okay. So they assembled them at the place called in the Hebrew Armageddon. Okay, so it's called Armageddon. Yeah, I'm sorry, that was it. <laughs> I didn't realize that was, no, that's good. That's perfect. That's what I wanted. So yeah, Armageddon in the, in the text there is just the hill of Megiddo. That's what it's, what it's referring to in the Hebrew. What's interesting is there you have a, a translation right from the Hebrew into our Greek New Testament. But the hill of Megiddo, it's very important that we realize that's where the nations are going to be gathered or assembled. But that's not really where the final battle takes place. So think of the Jezreel Valley as the assembling ground, but Jerusalem, according to Joel chapter 3, is where the battle is going to take place. And so a better alternative than the Jezreel Valley for the Valley of Jehoshaphat is probably the Kidron Valley. Now I'm going to show you some biblical evidence uh, that may suggest this, but this is something that we learned from church history. And by the way, when I use church history, I'm not saying that this is authoritative in any way, but Jerome believed that the Kidron Valley was the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And I want to read to you from one of the encyclopedias that I was using that lists this as a possibility. Let me read this to you. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is mentioned, it says, in Joel chapter 3, verses 2 and 12. That's what we're reading. It says, where in the fullness of time, God will gather all the nations to judge them. According to 2 Chronicles 20, 26, the army of the king of Jehoshaphat had assembled after the defeat of his enemies in the Valley of Barakah, which is blessing. Bob was referring to the Barakah earlier in Ephesians. Now that valley was somewhere near Tekoa. Tekoa would be south of Jerusalem. Popular legend, however, identified the Valley of Jehoshaphat with the middle section of the Kidron Valley, Jerusalem, and called the tomb behind Absalom's tomb, the tomb of Jehoshaphat. As such, it is already referred to by the Bordeaux Pilgrim in 33, excuse me, 333 AD. Now, let me explain the Bordeaux Pilgrim. That was a writing of a person in the fourth century where they were leaving France and they were traveling all the way to the promised land. And what they basically wrote down was their travel itinerary. And so the whole writing is just about rest stops that they took from their journey from Bordeaux, France, all the way to Jerusalem. And what's interesting is in this writing, again, in the fourth century, 333 AD, when they get to Jerusalem, they refer to the Kidron Valley as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So apparently in the fourth century, it was widely understood that the Kidron Valley was the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, in and of itself, again, this is just secular history. It's not authoritative in any way. Well, let me try to lay out the case of what's happening in this Kidron Valley. I think it's very significant 
because Zechariah 14 also depicts a lot of events occurring in a valley that's just around Jerusalem that God is going to be creating. So let me show you Zechariah 14. I think Zechariah 14 and Joel chapter 3 are really parallel. This is what it says in Zechariah 14.4. Now remember, this is that final battle where the Messiah returns. It's being described in Joel 3. It says, in that day his feet, this is the Messiah's, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Okay, now, first of all, notice when the Messiah returns, he's going to put his feet where? On the Mount of Olives. Now, remember, that's exactly where Jesus ascended from. Remember in Acts chapter 1, as he's ascending, the angels say to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you gaze skyward? This Jesus is coming back in like manner. Okay, so he's going to be setting his foot on the Mount of Olives at the end of the parousia, the end of the 70th week of Daniel, to get rid of his enemies. But notice there's going to be topographical changes around Jerusalem. It says the Mount of Olives, which is to the east of Jerusalem, is going to be split in its middle from east to west. Okay, so there's going to be this huge rift in the Mount of Olives from east to west. And then half of the mountain is going to move to the north and half to the south. Let's look at this diagram. This is a diagram of Jerusalem. And I want you to notice here on the diagram you have the Temple Mount. This is Jerusalem. This would be the west side, north side, south side, east side. Well, here's the Kidron Valley. In fact, you can see the designation Kidron Valley here. Well, it's interesting. What's being described in Zechariah 14.4 is that the Mount of Olives is going to have a split in it from east to west. And half of this is going to move to the north. And then half of this mountain is going to move to the south. And so there's going to be a valley that connects onto the Kidron Valley, almost like a T or an L, okay? And what you're going to see in the next verse is that the people of God are going to flee that direction. Now, it's interesting to note that in history, oops, sorry, I just hit my table there. It's interesting to note that in history, this is exactly where the Spirit of God fled. When the people of God were apostate, according to Ezekiel 11, the Spirit of God left the temple and he went out to the east of the Mount of Olives and he left. When you get to Matthew chapter 23 in the New Covenant, Jesus, who is God himself, leaves the temple desolate, and he follows the same pattern. He goes to the Mount of Olives, where he gives us Olivet Discourse. And, and that's why Jesus said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Again, citing the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118.26. And so he left to them the temple desolate, again, because of their apostasy. Well, what's interesting is at the end of the time, God is going to bring them to faith, the people of Israel. And he's going to create an avenue of escape where they will flee in the same direction. But this time it's in salvation. This time the people of God will be fleeing as the Messiah comes to fight on their behalf. That's what we see being described in Zechariah 14. Now, let me pull up verse 5 of Zechariah 14. Notice how it continues. He says, you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. 
Now, this is very exciting. Notice here in red, he's talking about the people of God fleeing by the valley of my mountains. Now, the mountains here probably is a reference to Mount Moriah and, again, uh, Mount Olivet that is going to be split in two. Okay, so what's being brought to mind is this is, in a sense, the last exodus. Just as God brought the Israelites through the mountains, as it were, through the Red Sea and the wilderness during the exodus, the final exodus will occur at this final battle where he's going to allow his people to flee and to be spared. And so the Valley of My Mountains is this valley that he's created through the splitting of the Mount of Olives. And again, this is all connected on to the Kidron Valley. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Well, my point is in the Zechariah 14 text, which is parallel to Joel 3, you have a lot going on in Jerusalem, don't you? You have topographical changes. You have the Messiah putting his feet on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is going to be split in two. And so more than likely, this is where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is. It's the valley in which all the nations are going to be judged. Remember, Jehoshaphat means Yahweh is judge. Because they rejected Jesus, Yahweh is salvation, they're getting Yahweh as their judge. That's the issue. Okay. Now, one thing I want to point out here, I, I did a little research into this place called Azel. And one of the difficulties is we don't really know where that is today. A lot of scholars just kind of throw their hands in the air. But for many years, scholars thought that this is perhaps a place called Beth Azel. Literally, remember, anytime you see Beth, it means house. So like Bethlehem is the house of bread, right? Well, Beth Azel would be the house of nearness. Or sometimes it's referred to as the house of joining. And apparently this was a city that was to the east of Jerusalem, uh, just exactly in the area where this valley is going to be created when God splits the Mount of Olives in two. So it would be east of there. So perhaps Azel was really a reference to this Beth Azel that you read about in Micah 1. Now I want you to see a reference to it. Turn your Bibles to Micah 1. In fact, Micah 1.11. As you're turning to Micah 1.11, remember he was a prophet prophesying to the people of Israel during the wicked reign of King Ahab, who brought the Israelites into idolatry and into Baal worship. So Micah was calling them to repentance. And so here in Micah 1.11, the prophet Micah is warning them of this coming Assyrian judgment because of their idolatry. And this is where you see this Beth Azel reference. Micah 1.11, he says, he warns them, go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir, in shameful nakedness. The inhabitant of Zanan does not escape the lamentation of Bethazel. He will take from you its support. Now, one thing we know is notice here that reference to Shafir, that means beautiful. And notice the people that lived in the place of the beautiful land, they're going to be clothed with shameful nakedness. Why? Because of the judgment that's coming at the hands of the Assyrians. But notice there's going to be this lamentation also at Beth Azel. So that was to the east of Jerusalem in the day. And perhaps that's being referred to here again when it talks about the mountains will reach Azel. Okay, so that's the direction. It was to the east of Jerusalem in that valley. Today, it's actually a, a, a wadi that has some water in it during the rainy season, but it's normally dry. Now, to me, it's kind of interesting to think about how the name of this town, if it is a reference to Beth Azel, 
the name of the little town meant that it's literally the house of nearness or the house of joining. It isn't interesting to think about that as God chases his enemies and rescues his people, he sends them to the place of the house of joining where the Lord is going to fight on their on their behalf in the last battle. Notice also that they're going to flee just as they did during the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. Now, this earthquake, there's not a lot of information about it, but so significant was this earthquake that it remained in the memory of the prophets like Zechariah hundreds of years in the book of Amos. In fact, turn your Bibles to Amos 1.1, and I want you to see where this earthquake is mentioned by Amos, who was ministering to the people of Judah. Again, turn your Bibles to Amos 1.1. And again, the reason I want you to turn there is I want you to see how prevalent this reference to the earthquake was. Amos 1.1. Notice it says the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, again, that's south of Jerusalem, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, a lot of scholars believe that this earthquake probably happened around 760 BC. So that would have put Amos writing around 762, at least beginning his ministry. But the big issue I want you to see is that this was a known uh, fleeing area, an area that they fled by during the earthquake of Uzziah. It was a place where they had fled to earlier. So they knew where this was when Zechariah had written it. And again, Zechariah is attaching it to Jerusalem. Now, my whole point in pointing this out is there is a lot going on in the final battle around the Kidron Valley. That is more than likely where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is going to occur. So again, what I see happening in the 70th week of Daniel is towards the end of the 70th week, God will gather all the nations to the Jezreel Valley, the assembling point but they will flow from there and they will surround Jerusalem and attack her. And it seems lost. It seems as if the people of God are going to be devastated, that they're forever going to be wiped out. And at that last day of the 70th week of Daniel, the Lord Jesus returns from heaven, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, and destroys the enemies that are trying to wipe out his covenant people. That's what I see being depicted here in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Again, I think the best take is that it's the Kidron Valley. Okay, so with that, let's talk about how God is going to judge those who abuse Israel. And I'm just looking at the time here. I want to make sure we have plenty of time for comments and questions. In fact, if you have anything to say, feel free to interrupt me during the message here. I'd be more than willing to take a comment or question as we go. Let's read here Joel 3, 2. We'll continue to verse 2. I want to look at this again. He says, then I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Now, again, we have this reiterated by Joel that he's bringing them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. But notice here, he says he's going to judge them, the nations, because of what they did to his inheritance. So the Lord considers Israel his inheritance. Now, that should put in our minds a very important text that Bob and I have been teaching for many years that's really important for our Christian worldview, 
And that's found in Deuteronomy 32. And I want you to turn there to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, because there we see all the nations were given as an inheritance to the host of heaven, to the sons of God, the divine counsel, to the angelic realm. But there was one nation that God took to be his own inheritance, and that was Israel. And the reason I think it's important to reflect on this text is it shows us how precious Israel really is. Even to this day, it's still God's inheritance. In fact, when you and I trusted upon Jesus, according to Romans 11, we were grafted into their promises. We were grafted into the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the promises to Israel for their kingdom and their establishment forevermore is our promises too. Okay, so the promises that are given to Israel, you've been grafted into them. So don't think that you're somehow a second-class citizen. No, these are your promises too. You were grafted in. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, notice what it says. The Lord says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, so notice the nations have their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. That's actually the best rendering. Now, stop there for just a moment. Who are the sons of God? I know some of your versions say sons of Israel. That's not a good reading. I have the same thing in my New American Standard Bible. The sons of God is actually the best reading. We know that from texts that came from the Dead Sea Scrolls. We also know that from the Septuagint. Now, the sons of God is a reference to the divine council, this angelic realm, uh, comprised of both good and wicked angels. Okay, this is the same divine council that you see in Job. Remember in the beginning of Job where you have Satan was part of the divine council and he asked to shift and to sift uh, to sift Job, right? And God, of course, gives uh, Satan permission. Well, that's the same divine council. That's the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. So that's what's being referred to there. Now, notice in verse 9, it says, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Notice in this text in Deuteronomy 32.10, Israel, which is Jacob, remember Jacob is, the, is renamed Israel, the one who struggles with God. He is the inheritance of Yahweh. And so Yahweh guards him, as it says, as the pupil of his eye. By the way, that expression probably comes from some of the sandstorms that would happen in the ancient Near East, where if you were out in a sandstorm, you would have to guard the pupil of your eye. Otherwise, if you're blinded in the sandstorm, you're a dead man. Well, in the same way, God sees Israel as so precious, he guards it like a man guards his pupil during a sandstorm. That's how precious Israel is. It's as precious as a man's sight is on a journey through the wilderness so that he protects the people of his eye. So this means then that Israel needs to be protected and he will be. That's exactly what's happening in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. God is going to judge the nations for what they do to God's inheritance. One principle that we should always learn from scripture is you don't want to contradict God and you don't want to attack his promises. If someone stands against God and his promises, they will be judged. Okay, now, one of the questions I think we have to wrestle with is when does this happen? 
this battle that happens at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Well, I think you know, but let me put this up there to, to create a little discussion here. Some claim that this happens now during the church age. That is, that God will judge enemies that mistreat Israel, his inheritance. But, of course, I believe that it's going to happen during the end of the 70th week of Daniel. That's when this battle is actually being depicted. Now, why do I mention that some claim this happens now during the church age? Well, let me tell you a little story. Back in 2005, I was on a board of a discernment ministry. And in this discernment ministry, there was a lot of people that would come to these conferences who were speakers, and they would claim that Hurricane Katrina occurred because at the time, George Bush, the president of the United States, was mistreating Israel. And because he was mistreating Israel, Joel chapter 3 was occurring, that God was judging the nations that, in fact, were mistreating God's inheritance. Now, notice Joel chapter 3, the context, of course, is this final battle surrounding Jerusalem. And the men who were claiming that this was a principle being fulfilled in 2005 with the Hurricane Katrina, they would admit, yes, the final battle will occur, at the end of the 70th week. But what they were claiming is that principle still happens now in church history. It's already occurring. What I would claim is that we can't know that. When, whenever we see a cataclysmic event, we cannot know whether that's the wrath of God or not. Because why? Well, we don't have an authoritative apostle or prophet on the scene of history that can tell us any given hurricane or tornado or fire outbreak is indeed the wrath of God. We simply can't know that. So what I did is I tried to say, wait a minute, let's just reserve Joel chapter 3, not as a principle of things that happened in church history, but as a promise of what God will do in the 70th week of Daniel, in the eschatological age. That's when God is going to rectify all of the injustices that have been perpetrated against him and his people. It happens in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, another uh, passage. Harry? Yeah, yeah, oh, Bob. Sorry, I made problems here. I wanted to ask about that. I think it's very important because I've had more issues and disputes and debates with people over it too. Um, why don't you reiterate why, reiterate, why is it necessary to have an authoritative prophet and that would certainly have to keep the uh, principles of discernment of what is a true prophet based on Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Why is that necessary for us to know whether cataclysmic weather events or earthquakes or um, hurricanes? Why, why do we need such a prophet to know if those are the wrath of God? Yeah, Eamon, great question, Bob. And I know you've touched on this in many of your CIC articles, etc. Um, one of the reasons we have to do that is think about this. The pagans, when they have a pagan worldview, they'll try to discern what the gods were doing by trying to dis divine what nature was saying to them. So, they, for example, they will use sometimes the liver of an animal, and they will try to divine what the Lord is saying or one of their gods was saying. Uh, they'll look at nature and try to decipher what the future holds or what the gods were saying to them. But what we as the people of God know is that we are dependent upon God for his revelation. Unless God reveals it, 
it remains a mystery. Okay, so we are never to be as the people of God, those who go into the realm of the mystery, the hidden things, the occultic things, and try to discern what it means. So we know this from Deuteronomy 29, 29, where the things that the Lord has revealed, yes, they belong to us and the children, our children forever, but the things the Lord has not revealed belong to the Lord alone. So if you have a, a let's take a tornado outbreak, a pagan might try to discern from the tornadoes what the faith that they have or what the gods are saying. But we as Christians who have a biblical worldview say, no, I can't know what's good or bad through nature or trying to divine a storm and try to get into hidden messages. But instead, I'm to know the moral will of God through what he's revealed in the scriptures. That's what we are to know. Yeah. So yeah. we have an authoritative apostle or prophet on the scene of history. We simply can't know whether any given storm or sickness, etc., is the wrath of God or not. We can't know. But, but Eric, uh, some of these people who are making the claims claim they are prophets. Yes. But the thing that I have debated is uh, some of these prophets have been wrong in the past in their predictions. Yeah. And... Um, so then the point is this. If they've been wrong in the past, then how do we know they're right now? And if they're, they may or may not be speaking for God, if it's iffy, then how do we know how to take action? Because we don't have a clear word from God. And, Amen. And, and furthermore, how do we know what God's angry about? And as you notice, the liberals are claiming God's angry about something totally different what we know God disapproves of because we believe Scripture. Amen. Okay, so now you, you haven't really solved the debate. You have just different political viewpoints debating over what God is angry about. Or, Of course, the, the real pagans that are on the ascendancy think that nature is God. So the problem is always that we're yes. doing something that nature is not happy with, as if nature were uh, in charge of us rather than man, according to Genesis, in charge of taking care of the planet Earth, as Adam was charged to do. Amen. Well said. You know, and we have an advantage um, being New Covenant Christians. We know that there are no modern-day apostles and prophets. Uh, one of the passages that seems to allude to that is Ephesians 2.20, where the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And Again, just as you only have one foundation in a building, you don't have multiple foundations, you only have one, that's already been laid. And so that's why we have the uh, the word of God given to us once and for all, as it says in Jude chapter 3. Another passage, Bob, that you've pointed out over the years is that 1 Corinthians 15, 8, where the apostle Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me also. Remember that last of all means that Paul was the last in a series of apostles that the Lord appeared to. Well, according to 1 Corinthians 9.1, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection in order to be an apostle. So if, if Paul was the last one who saw the Lord, you don't have any more apostles after that. Okay, well, certainly if we don't have any more apostles, they were over authority of the, the prophets. You don't have any more prophets either. And so that's the problem in the new covenant is we don't have a modern day apostles and prophets. And really it's a benefit to us because what that means then is we don't have to wonder and take, for example, Jonathan Kahn. We don't have to take him and say, let's use 
Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, the two tests for a true prophet, we know he's not a true prophet because that foundation's done, done away with. Okay, so it makes it very easy. We can simply say, hey, this is, these are things that they can't know. They're, they're claiming to reveal revelation to us, and we know they're a $3 bill because the revelation we've been given has been delivered once and for all. After the book of Revelation was completed, there is no more. And by the way, I think that's one of the reasons why at the end of the book of Revelation, the curse is given that if anyone would add to the book of Revelation, the curses found in the book of Revelation itself would be added to them. It's very fitting that that curse is given at the final book that was written by the apostle in 95 AD, the final book of our canon. I think okay. it's very fitting. So yes, the canon's closed, and we don't have to listen to people who are claiming that any given hurricane is the wrath of God. We can simply say, hey, you can't know that. And that's what Bob and I have been fighting for, to say, let's just rely on the categories that we see in Scripture, warning people about the wrath to come. Right. And we've said in the past, Jesus answered that when they wanted to. Yeah. Because there were some cataclysmic events that happened. And so they thought, well, yep. uh, they must be worse sinners. Right, right. And Jesus' answer to that was, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And I remember one time I was waiting to be on the radio out at KKMS. I was in studio, but I wasn't up till the next hour. And there was this guy on. This was back when that massive hurricane hit New Orleans. Yep. Wasn't that Katrina? Yeah, that was 2005. That's the one I was thinking of, too. Yep. Right. Well, so this guy was on the radio. He was a guest claiming that he was a, a prophet like Jeremiah. And he said this was going to happen. And that, I don't know if he predicted New Orleans, but obviously this was the wrath of God uh, coming because New Orleans is a notoriously sinful city. So they, they were getting what they had coming. All right. So yeah. I... I I mean, I just shook my head. What in the world? How could, how can he know this? And Jesus said that we can't do that. We can't say so and so is worse sinner. Can we sit here in Minnesota and say we know we're not the bad sinners because the hurricanes don't hit us? Right, right. Okay. Great well, point. it's real safe for us to say we're okay. We know the hurricanes don't get this far north. Go ahead. Right. The people who say this? Yeah. Okay, he asked if we confront them with the gospel, how they react. Well, I've done that, and they say, oh, we believe that. We believe yeah. the gospel. But they still want to be sensational, and they write books, and they get on TV, and they get on the radio, and they got millions of followers. Eric and I are nobodies compared to these people as yeah. far as the number of followers they have. And people want to hear that. It makes them feel good. Yeah, because yeah. we're not happy with the outcome we're seeing now. We're not happy. I'm going to preach on this this morning. Uh, we're talking about raising children. We're not happy that wicked people prosper. And nobody has been. We get the lament, lament literature. And we're not happy that righteous people suffer. So yeah. if we can somehow say, this is what you get if you don't do things the way we think you should. Then we have the wrath of God at our beck and call. 
and we can really get those wicked sinners. Finally, they're right. getting what they deserve. And it just proves that we don't want to wait for the eternal outcome. We want it to happen in the here and now. And in, yeah. in real radical forms of this, with this uh, Christian reconstruction and other kingdom now type approaches, they want to actually raise Christian armies to go punish the sinners now. Right, and right. And that's been done like with the Crusades. Uh, Beth, you had something quite a while ago. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Okay, let me just repeat that. She was, she was going to point to the same passage. It's in Luke 13, for people yeah. want to look it up. And the whole world's cursed because we live under the curse of sin. Amen. And so Amen. I have a sermon, a little preview. I'm going to talk at the end with a call to repent, including at the very, my last verse is going to be at the end of Zechariah. Yeah. Where finally Israel calls on God. Yeah. Amen. And um, the, so the, the answer is to call on God. We're all sinners. Amen. Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And so Absolutely. pointing your fingers around about who's the worst sinner and determining that based on nature right. is not a biblical worldview. Yeah, okay. amen. God is more angry with certain people somewhere in Minnesota because they have a drought there, and somewhere else they got rain, so therefore God's happy. We can't discern who God's happy with by observing nature. Right. We've got to go to the moral know, law of God in the Bible, and sometimes wicked people prosper. I'm going to preach on that. Yes. Is there, okay, the question is there, does God ever use the weather to de de deploy his wrath? Yeah, the flood, but he promised not to do that again. Uh, yeah, yeah. The blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy, where they were, up, were on the two mounts, Ebal and Gerizim, and the yeah. curses and the blessings and back and forth. And so you could say, well, there's a promised blessing if the Israel be faithful, and which included agricultural blessing. But you might, if you look at the whole section of the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy, in the end it says, and when all these curses come upon you. Yeah. So right there, Moses said, you're not going to obey God. We already know that. Right. Can you think of any, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the 70th week of Daniel, we're going to have hail. That's about 100 pound uh, hailstones that'll come. So God will use the weather as instruments of his wrath. But notice that's going to occur in the 70th week of Daniel. We've had an apostle declare that to us, the apostle John. The issue is whether we can know any given storm now is the wrath of God. And one of the passages I like to think of is remember in John 9, you had the man who was born blind. And the assumption was it was either his sin that caused that horrific thing to happen to him, or it was the sin of his parents. 
But what's interesting is Jesus cut the Gordian knot and said, well, no, it was neither the sin of the man nor the parents, but it was so that God would be glorified. And what's interesting is, let me tell you a little story. Some years ago, I remember it wasn't long after Katrina. I think the left kind of caught wind of the fact that we as conservatives were saying, hey, you wretched sinners, the reason why this storm is happening is because you're all sinning against God. Well, there was a huge tornado outbreak and it wiped out a lot of godly evangelical churches in the Bible Belt, like in Alabama and Arkansas. And the left lashed onto that and they said, well, that's the wrath of God upon these intolerant Christians. Well, the problem with that, of course, is they can't know that either. Okay, we can't know. But I remember what's very interesting is during that storm outbreak, there was a Christian man and all of his stuff was destroyed in his entire house. It was all gone. And there was a CNN reporter that brought the microphone up to him. And she said, man, uh, what, you know, what do you think about this storm? Are you angry, etc." Well, the man right away says, I want to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, he's the Lord of my life before the storm. And he's also the Lord of my life after the storm. And then the man said on CNN, I'll never forget it. He said, if the Lord Jesus wants to take my house and all my stuff and throw it into the woods over there, well, he's the Lord. He can do that. He can take my stuff and move it over there. It all belongs to him. So here this man was giving great glory to God in this, what we would refer to as a tragedy. And I thought right away of John 9. It wasn't that he sinned or someone else sinned, but it was so that God would be glorified, perhaps even through that CNN reporter as she asked the question. So my whole point is we don't know what God is doing. Providentially, uh, we know that Providence contains both good and evil, as Bob has taught us very well on. And sometimes we can look back and we can see what God has done. Sometimes we never know. But what we can know is that the only way we can know what God is morally morally demands of us is through the written word of God. Amen. That's what we have given to us by the apostles and prophets. That's what we're bound by. So um, it's a good segue, and I don't want to cut anybody off, but I just want to get into this. Think about this in Romans 2, 5. I just want us to think about this text. Look at what Paul says regarding the wrath of God. He says regarding the unregenerate, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice Paul does say that you're storing up wrath that could break forth at any time in the form of a storm or that you have wrath upon you right now because of your illnesses. Notice he says that you're storing up wrath for what? For the future day of wrath. That's the idea. Okay, so he was content with warning people about the wrath to come. You see the same idea in Matthew 3 here, where you have John the Baptist talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Uh, literally, it's the coming wrath. Okay, so again, John the Baptist was content with warning them about this future epoch of time where there will be the wrath of God. He's not trying to pile wrath upon them now, but he's also waiting for the future. So my point is this. Let us be like John the Baptist. Let us be like the Apostle Paul, who affirms, yes, the wrath is coming, but we're not going to try to claim that any given illness or storm 
is the wrath of God now. Uh, Bob, you gave a great message some years ago. I remember it when we were back in the Fick Auditorium and you were doing a Sunday school and you talked about exemplary judgments. Do you want to just mention that God uses exemplary judgments to show us that he doesn't tolerate evil forever? Kind of explain what those judgments were in the past, like the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. The thing that... <laughs> The thing that's interesting about exemplary judgment is that we did have prophets and we do know what was going on. And, for example, Noah's, Noah's flood, for example, um, we knew what was going to happen. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. And we had God speaking so we knew what the issue was. And then I believe it's in Hebrews where it says that it's a warning for all those thereafter who would live in unrighteousness. Yeah, amen. So we've already had enough examples in history when we did have prophets speaking for God and we did have the word of God spoken that we've been given once for all, that we know what God thinks about wickedness and sin. And so, therefore, all those thereafter are without excuse. God doesn't have to come along and wipe out whatever town in America is more sinful than the rest of them for us to figure out what God is angry with. Amen. We find that out in in the Bible. The thing that makes pagans pagan is that they are looking to nature to find out God's will or even who God is when they get it all wrong because they have a panentheistic God and they don't really know what morals are valid or not valid because they don't listen to what God said. Hey, Bob, I want to give an example of an exemplary judgment. Um, Everyone turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 9. I think this will help kind of build our worldview on this. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 9. What's interesting is Peter, remember in 2 Peter 3, he's dealing with these false teachers that are claiming that Jesus isn't coming again. So the debate between the false teachers and the apostles was who was interpreting the scriptures correctly. The apostles say Jesus is coming a second time bodily to judge. The false teachers are saying, no, he's not. So notice here in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 9, Peter is going to cite an exemplary judgment. Now, remember, he's an apostle, and he's appealing not to something that was occurring, some judgment that was happening in his day, but rather he appeals to an exemplary judgment in the past that shows that God will one day judge again in the future. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 9. It says, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Now, now stop there for a moment. The term coming there is parousia. So this is all about the second advent of Christ. That's what they're debating. So where's the promise of his coming, these mockers say? They say, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, he says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. 
Now stop there at the end of verse 5. Peter's point is that God intervened, and he did so supernaturally to do the creation. So God intervened supernaturally in the creation, but notice verse 6. He says, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. Verse 7, it says, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. By the way, the elect in the context, not wishing for any to perish, but for all implied elect to come to repentance. Right. The issue is you have the flood being used as an exemplary judgment. And so Peter doesn't say, hey, look, look at what's happening to you now. You've got the sniffles. You've got um, you've got a, a hurricane or you had some tornado outbreak or you have. No, he appealed to what the Lord did in the flood. And that was evidence of what God would do again in the future day of wrath. Brian, I see Brian there. Yeah, he hey, has Brian. a question. We have to unmute Dano. Oops, I'm sorry. You know what? How do I do that? Let me. Uh, Maybe they can do it there. I don't know. I think. Oh, yeah. You got to unmute yourself. Uh, I'm asked. Uh, yeah, I can't do it. Got to do that, I think. Okay, yeah. now he's okay. Yeah. yeah, there you go. You okay? Yeah, I got you. How do you hear okay. me? Yeah. Say, uh, Eric. Yeah. The the coming wrath, I, I'd like to just look at the individual believer and believers who are chastised by God. And the Bible tells us that that strengthens the believer. But would the same thinking apply that we don't know that that's God chastising us until further down the road when we could maybe look back and say, oh, God was chastising me. So would the same principle apply to individual chastisement as it would for wrath? Yeah, very good question. The one thing we can know, um, again, providence contains both good and evil. And what we can know is that God has promised in Romans 8.28, for example, to use all things for the good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. So I'm looking at the, the picture rather than the, the bright white light here. And so we know that God can use all things and he does and will use all things for our good. So that's what we can know. Now, saying that, we again as believers can't know whether any given thing is the wrath of God. But what we can know is that God is going to use every single event for our edification so that you and I will be conformed to the image of Christ. The whole goal in Romans chapter 8 is that God is going to use everything providentially in order that you and I would be conformed to the image of the Son so that we will be glorified with a resurrected body just as Christ is. And so God sovereignly and providentially uses all events for the good of the believer. Now, let's take the individual unbeliever. What they have to be aware of is that it's appointed once for a man to, to die. After that comes judgment. We see that in Hebrews 9.27. So individually, when an unbeliever dies and the death rate's one per person, if they have not repented and come to faith in Christ, they are under the wrath of God. They're in Hades, which is a place of temporal torment awaiting the final lake of fire in Revelation 20. And so 
we can warn people about the wrath of God. Um, in Revel, excuse me, in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God was present. Remember, it was being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But that wrath in Romans 1.18 was the wrath of hardening, where God gives people over to their evil desires so that they will not repent, they will not trust the creator, but they'll still worship the creation. That's what Paul builds on through Romans chapter 1. So ironically, the wrath that we have now isn't God judging them in the sense where he's punishing them in the lake of fire or through a hurricane, but rather he hands them over to their own desires so that they end up doing what you see in Romans 2, 5. They end up storing up wrath for the coming day of wrath. Okay, so do you see the difference? Right now, the wrath of God is being displayed by God giving people over to their sins. And it's only by the Holy Spirit who enables us to believe that we're broken out of that cycle. The only reason, look on the screen, the only reason you and I aren't storing up wrath is because God supernaturally intervened by the Holy Spirit to enable us to believe the gospel because we were dead sinners in Christ. And the moment we believed, we were no longer storing up wrath, but rather reward in the kingdom. It literally is that stark of a reversal. So I think that's how we could, should conceive of the individual. Yes, all things work for the good for those who love them, for believers. But for the unbelievers, they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. I, I hope that helps. Let me, let me ask something, Gary. Um, yeah. Isn't it true that as Christians, we're, we're under the discipline of God because we're, he disciplines his sons and daughters? Amen. And Amen. so how would we know what that looks like? Well, I, I believe Christians, because we have the Holy Spirit, we're convicted and God gets our attention. However, he sees fit to get our attention. And we may very well, based on things that happen, start thinking, you know, I really need to repent, and I know what. God's getting my attention. Yeah. And that's, I believe, part of discipline. Amen. And Amen. we're not doing that because we have a prophet. We're doing because we know what the Bible says. And we want to be faithful to the Lord. And he does get our attention. And we are his sons and daughters, and he disciplines us. Yes. Peter. Okay, uh, Peter, Peter, we have said that uh, in the case of Matthew 3, 7, the Pharisees were rebuked, even though they were coming for baptism. Is that because they were, as Peter just said, checking the box, covering their bases, but their heart really wasn't right? Yeah, you know, Peter, I think you're right. I think there was a religious formalism to the, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the irony is John the Baptist was the one prophesied who was preparing the way straight for the Lord. We see him prophesied in Malachi 4. And so he's preaching repentance. And the idea of repentance is, again, a turning in our minds from that which is displeasing to God, sin and rebellion, to turning to God on his terms. The irony is the Pharisees and Sadducees 
have no intention of turning to faith in Christ. They have no intention of doing that. They're relying upon their religious formalism, um, as Bob would um, lay out for us in Galatians. They're, they're relying upon law works, works of the law. In fact, remember how uh, Paul boasted uh, or talked about his own boasting in the, the works of the flesh in the book of Philippians and how he counted it all as dung when he came to Christ. That's the idea that the Pharisees and Sadducees were trusting in. So the irony is they're in a heart, their, their heart is in a situation in which they're not trusting in this coming Messiah. They're relying upon their religious formalism and they're merely going through the ritual of baptism without a heart that has changed. And that's what John the Baptist is actually doing. He's preparing the heart for the people, for the Lord. And so you're absolutely right. He's, he's rebuking them for the religious formalism that has a heart not bent on God, but salvation by works instead. Absolutely. And you see that all the way through the Gospels. Absolutely. Um, I think we're out of time, Eric, if you want to wrap this up. And oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry. We're, I didn't see my clock there. Well, great questions. I love the interaction. Well, let, let's end in prayer here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you're coming to the end at the end of time to judge your enemies and to relieve your people from affliction. And we do thank you, Lord, that these promises are true, that you will not allow your inheritance, Israel, to be wiped out. We thank you also, most importantly, that through faith in Christ, this inheritance that you have is our inheritance too, that we'll be partakers of the great marriage supper of the Lamb with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the great eschatological age. I pray for stamina, by my brothers and sisters as we look forward to this coming day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.